Welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Anna Mikolska, non-resident fellow energy studies at James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. Anna, thank you so much for coming on to the show. How are you doing this beautiful morning? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing great and uh, looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, me too. And first, I want to send a big shout out to Mark Hamzat Orobako from the Financial Executives Network Group for making the connection. You and I met for the first time, and I don't even know if you remember, but it was it was during a webinar where you spoke on energy markets policy, which was super interesting to me and, and is really what spurred my interest in having you on the show. So I'm curious. So do you know Mark then personally, or are you even familiar with who I'm speaking of? Because I'm sure you are. Yes. Yes, yeah. of course. Okay. We actually met at one of the events that I was, where I was speaking and he, you know, we had a short conversation and since then we've been actually in touch and he's invited me a couple of times to speak over the internet currently since it's the (laughs) pandemic, but Mm. we've been in touch for a while now. Good. You know, it's interesting. He's such a connector of people, which is fascinating. I I have a lot of respect for him. He's connected me with folks like Dan Pickering, yourself, Mm -hmm. and a few others that I've had on the podcast. And I've never met him before, but he's just such a, a great person. He's genuine and he likes to help others. And and I like to help support him and his initiatives and things that he's doing. So again, I just wanted to mention Mark for anyone out there who hasn't connected with him on LinkedIn, I suggest you do so. He's always putting out a lot of great content and just opportunities to join free webinars. And then that's again, how we met. So I think it's great. And before you and I continue our conversation, I do want to mention some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, which is Technip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data for operators about the well-pad operations. Technip FMC continues to push the limits in order to achieve full-frack automation. To discover more about the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. Also with OGGN, we're doing our monthly happy hour, so please visit OGGN.com for details. And if you're interested in more OGGN podcasts, visit the website. We've got a number of them that cover everything from new technology, ESG, leadership, and many others. So please check them out. Anna, so again, back to you. I'm very interested, and you mentioned before we started recording, but tell us first, where are you from and how did you end up here in the U.S.? Right. So it's been a long journey, quite complicated, I guess. I was born and raised in Poland. In fact, I actually finished my education, the law school education in Poland. I finished law school there, and which I partially actually did in Germany, just came back to defend. Once I defended, 
I actually left for Canada. Um, ah, that's I, where I'm from. So please continue. I want to hear all the good things about Canada. So I did my master's in international relations there. And where at? University of Windsor. Ah, okay. In Ontario. Right on the border with Detroit. Yes. Yeah. And actually got into a PhD program in Western, University of Western Ontario. Now it's Western in London, Ontario. As soon as I got into that program, got all my, you know, ducks in the row there. My now husband, not yet husband at that time, got a job in Houston. So he left. I stayed until I got an admission into University of Houston. So I moved half a year later, started my PhD in political science at the University of Houston. Once I finished, and I've taught quite a lot while doing my PhD slightly after. Then I did a postdoc at Rice and ultimately got my job at the Baker Institute. Very nice. Well, you basically told us like the very fast version, which is totally cool. But I'm curious, backing up to, so I did my 23andMe and I'm 99.9% Eastern European. My grandma grew up in, you know, Polish. And I, so I have like, on both sides, I have Ukrainian, Polish, Russian, a little bit of German. So I'm familiar with it. And so it's, it's interesting. So again, being from Canada, grew up with you know a lot of my family who is from Eastern European or yeah, from Eastern Europe. And so I've never been there, but what was it like growing up in Poland? Because I've heard stories and, you know, through my family, but I'm curious to hear your perspective. I guess, you know, I was almost probably one of the last kind of, or the last generation which was able to experience still communism and kind of still, I don't want to say appreciate, but still understand the dimension of communism. I was 11 years old when the communists ended. Okay. And at that point, I was actually already quite engaged in politics in terms of me understanding what it is. I had my favorite person who, who were running, where I was running for office and, and if I could only vote, right? <laughs> yeah. And truly, this was why I ended up going to law school later and then later following up, up in political science. So growing up in Poland, you know, when I actually had a really amazing childhood, even though it, it really... <laughs> was at the time of the largest economic crisis. We, you know, we, we, we really had not much, we weren't to do, able to buy much, for example, right? So, and at the time in the later 80s, the inflation and also lack of anything to buy was, was so interesting that you would go to the store, to a large store, to a grocery, large grocery store, and there was literally nothing but vinegar there. Wow. Nothing else. Really? It had to be open. Yes, because everybody had to work, so had to show up at work. But literally, there was nothing there. Or, for example, butcher shops. More often than not, there was nothing there. Just people who were working. Really. So it's you know my childhood is a childhood of lines with people lining up as soon as they've heard that there is a delivery coming to I don't know for example to an electronics store, and if you knew that people two days ahead would line up you know like for Black Friday I guess <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> That kind of feeling where you would have people who were literally, you know, professionally stand in the line. There was usually the retired grandmas. And, you know, the, the interesting part was as your turn would come to buy something, you just would buy what was. That didn't matter whether you had it at home, whether you need it or not. You were buying what was available, how many you could buy, because then later you could barter it. Ah, Interesting. Alternatively, you could have free juicers like we did, 
because that's what my parents got as their wedding presents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No kidding. So does that give you, I mean, obviously experiencing that, does that give you a quite a large sense of gratification and appreciation for, you know, the world we live in today here in the US? I mean, I would imagine that sort of helped build some of your values and framework and just, like I said, level of gratification. I mean, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, it definitely does. I think it's a point of reference that I have. Yeah. It's not only the way we we live now in the US, in Poland or anywhere else really in, in Europe, you are able, or especially in the EU, you are able to access things that at that point were not accessible. You are able to travel. We could not travel. My mom was a judge at that point and she refused to join the Communist Party, which okay. basically meant she would never get a passport. Ah. So we couldn't travel outside of the Polish borders. So it's kind of, you know, the the ability to travel. And I think maybe that's why I've been always really obsessed with travel. I always wanted to, you know, maybe that's why I ended up, you know, living so far from home because, you know, it's kind of part of that freedom that I really have been valuing. Yes, absolutely. That's not something that we could have done. We, you know, experiencing different cultures as opposed to being like, you know, in, in hermetically close society. So there's a lot of things that, I think I appreciate because I've had the experience Mm -hmm. of of not having them. And I, you know, it's an interesting, and at the same time, I did not have a, you know, unhappy childhood. I think my childhood was extremely happy. I loved it. My parents had time for me. You know, we, the life was slightly slower. Of course, I did not have all the issues that my parents had to deal with. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I was completely oblivious to inability of my parents to speak their mind. In fact, another funny story where, you know, my parents were obviously didn't belong to the Communist Party or so on. And kind of in their, you know, gesture of defiance, whenever I would be leaving my grandparents, I would be, they taught me instead of waving to show the V sign. Oh, really? For, you know, solidarity, the victory, there's a solidarity V. Yes. So, and I had no idea. They would say, oh, show the, show the grandparents the bunnies. And that's what I was showing my grandparents whenever we would say goodbye. But that was the solidarity movement sign that I was, you know, that they kind of, you know, had me show. And, you know, it took a while until, of course, I understood it. But it was an interesting time. What a fascinating story. I love that. And that's why I like kind of peeling back the onion a little bit and getting to people's childhoods, because these are just stories and things that like you don't hear of. But it's interesting you say that, you know, growing up, you weren't able to travel and now it's almost like you want what you can't have. And then when you have it, you kind of indulge. And that's similar, you know, growing up in Canada, get, having, you know, eight to nine months of what lots would consider beautiful weather. But for me growing up, it was miserable because it was cold and wet and snowy and, you know, rainy. And then moving to Houston, it's, you know, I feel like I'm on vacation the entire time because like I always, and then my family always spent a lot of money to get to Mexico and to go to tropical climates because we don't have that. And especially in the winter time, the most, you know, what us as Canadians do is we spend a bunch of money to go to, to Cancun or to Puerto Vallarta or, you know, just to, to get some heat and a little bit of, of a tan during the winter time. And now I'm here and it's, you know, it's beautiful, but some look at me like I'm crazy because I had the opportunity to stay in Denver back in like 2013. And it was so, it, it was so much of what I was used to. I was like, this just feels like where I grew up. So I want to go back to Houston. And people are like, you must be crazy because Houston is not as nice as Denver. I'm like, yeah, but I grew up in the city, very similar to Denver and being in the mountains. And while I still appreciate it, it's kind of like, 
again, it's just that weird connection. I don't know, but the same thing. I mean, I really never minded Houston's heat or humidity because every time I was thinking about mining it, mining it, I'm thinking, oh, I remember those days when, you know, yes. it was July and, you know, 60s and rain. But I think I prefer this. Finally, yeah. someone understands where I'm coming from. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, we live in Philadelphia and it's a little bit colder, for, but it's not as cold. And we do get a nice warm summer. Yeah. Oh, so you're in Philadelphia right now? Yes. Yes. Oh, so we I thought you were in Houston for some reason. No, we moved. So I lived in Houston for 11 years. And then my husband got a job in the Philadelphia surroundings. So we end up moving. And that's why I'm a non-residence fellow. Oh, interesting. Because on your LinkedIn, it still says Houston, Texas. So I just yeah, automatically they, assumed. They follow the job description. Yes. That's interesting. It. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm about now. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So interestingly, when I moved from Calgary to Pennsylvania in 2010, I actually lived in Pittsburgh for a couple of years or it was a little over like a year and a half or so, but it's such an interesting part of the US, one that I'm not sure I'd move back to, but it's beautiful in the spring and summer. And so again, another sort of, I feel like we could talk about everything, but not <laughs> energy, but I'm curious before we do talk about energy, growing up in Poland, what did you do for fun? Like what was sort of the best memory growing up there with regards to like your friends or in the weekends? Like, what did you guys do for fun? We actually lived in, a, I lived, I was born and raised in a small city. Okay. 20 something thousand people. So not really large. So everybody knows everybody. And, you know, at, at the time when I was little, it was really safe. So I would just, you know, at probably five or six, I was able to just go with my friends and basically disappear the whole day, just come back home to get something to eat. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. And, you know, in during the during the winter, we still had snow. It's not snow. It doesn't snow as much anymore. The summers where we live, it's basically full of lakes. So ah, even nice. after my parents would come from work, we would just go to the lake and we loved it. Or we would, you know, we would go to the to the seaside, which is not that far. Now it's probably two hours. But at the time when we were, you know, going with our Fiat 125P, that tiny little Fiat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With five people and a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and that Fiat that took longer. Oh, somewhat. my goodness. So, but yeah, it was quite a lot of, you know, freedom when I was a child to kind of do what I want with my friends. Plus, I was always a bookworm. I really, you know, I would read books all the time. Good for you. So yeah, at the point that when my school library prohibited me from wow. <laughs> getting more books, oh my because goodness. they thought I was cheating, that I was actually <laughs> not reading. I was just trying to, you know, make, make the number of my books because they were kind of, you know, later scoring us on how many books we would read. No so, way. Yeah. But you were actually like really just focused and a good reader, obviously. Are you, can you speed read? I mean, because that seems like a lot of reading. Like, are you, or you just really enjoy it? I just love it. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't read as much nowadays for pleasure. I just read a lot for work. And then in the evening, it's just hard to kind of, but I do it, you know, there's, I have the periods where I read, 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 read. And I go through like one book every two days. And so, and then kind of there is a period where I just mostly read for work, but I just enjoy it. It's yeah. Mm, well, with regards to reading, I never really read much growing up and now I'm forced to read for work. And even in school, I'm taking a class right now in organizational behavior and it's a lot of academic literature and it is like reading another language to me. So I only wish I had some reading skills like probably yourself. But anyway, another topic for another day. 
So let's talk about energy. I mean, that's obviously the reason we're on today. And so we kind of sidetracked there. So hopefully the audience is still is still listening. But you, so you have an extensive background in law and political science and looking through LinkedIn, it appears you were in school for like 10 years and now you work at, at a school, right? Yeah, which, you know, they always say, always be learning. And clearly you are and you continue to do so. And you're passionate about these topics. I mean, like I said, I've heard you speak and you can tell that it really is something that is part of your life and something that you you care strongly about. I'm curious, more on a, on a macro level right now, what's the most interesting thing in energy policy that you're noticing these days? I mean, there's a lot of transition happening. There's a lot of change. There's a lot of initiatives to, you know, with this sort of trying to go, you know, these targets setting out to 2050, low carbon. In general, what is something that you're like, you know what, like, Taking a step back, this is really interesting, and this could kind of maybe change the trajectory of where we're going. Can you kind of just speak on that? Sure. And, uh, you know, I think it goes back to what we were talking about. It goes back to me kind of growing up in a very different kind of society, more of a, you know, a less developing or, or less wealthy on a global, I mean, on a macro level country, but also with people kind of leading simpler lives and so on. But what I really, you know, notice now and I, what I have been writing about and what I'm currently kind of really, you know, writing about is this kind of this break between the developed and the developing world. And, and I think there is this kind of almost, you know, almost a chasm where there is little to no understanding of what people in different situations want. So we do see the developed, the developed world taking charge. And it's for, you know, for good reasons, right? We will want the world to be cleaner. We want the world to be able to support our life or the life of other, you know, beings here. And we want everybody to survive living in a, a clean environment. So this is a very important thing. And all these efforts, you know, the climate change action efforts and, and kind of environmental efforts are extremely important. And we see this has been picked up by the developed world. But we also see that this is not where the developing world is, true. It's, you know, we, we kind of see that there is other concerns that in these countries, many of these populations are actually more engaged in. And it gets, you know, to the point where there is kind of this, you know, almost an appointment. Why cannot everybody follow the suit, right? And I think, you know, that's exactly where one needs to take a step back and think about why the developed world is able to do that. And it is because it's wealthy, right? It's wealthy, better education, and wealthy on both levels, on the level of an individual, comparatively, of course, because there is different you know, parts of the societies and there is poorer part of the society that we can talk about later. And it's wealthy on in terms of the government wealth, which means that the government can afford subsidies, for example, right, for cleaner energy, can afford pushing specific policy and also knows that its citizen can afford paying more for electricity, for example, knowing that it comes from cleaner sources, right? So they are able to cut off coal and at the same time pay slightly more because now you can use gas, cleaner gas, or you can use renew in connection with renewables and so on. Whereas and it's kind of you know this postmodern society, right? Where we where you reach the certain level of wealth that material things don't matter as much as immaterial kind of the quality of life met, starts mattering more than yes. additional dollar, right? Are you familiar with the environmental Kuznick curve? 
not necessarily. Oh, it's it's a theory that sort of describes exactly what you're speaking of, and and I'm not going to go into serious detail of it, but it's interesting because it, it's very much so what what you're speaking of. But so anyway, is, I was. Yeah, this is my political science kind of, you know, training speaking, because that's kind of what we've seen, that once countries move to the, you know, higher level of developments, higher level of wealth, you see that their societies, the society's preferences change. And it's not the additional dollar that counts more, but these non-material things like, you know, clean environment, quiet, right, environment, and so on and so on. So it's a lot of things or, you know, good schools, right? Things like, things like that. Whereas, so we see that and it's almost almost natural that we would see that trend for people to push for, you know, being able to live in a cleaner environment because all the other needs are already kind of, you know, supported. Right. Right. Yes. And and in the developing world, this is not the case yet. Right. Yeah. We haven't reached the the point. Yeah. We haven't reached the point yet. It's, you know, when you think about sub-Saharan Africa, people live and die there early because, not because they are using electricity from coal. No, they, they usually don't even have access to electricity. They die there because they're using indoor ovens, which create indoor pollution. And, and particularly women and children are affected by that. So connection to any electricity is better than that. And the ability to you know access any other type of something that for us is normal, the medication, transportation, and so on, it's actually something that takes most of those goals, takes up more of those goals that the, the people would have, and that government needs to provide. And given that there is not much wealth, both on individual and governmental level, there always will be looking for the cheapest way to develop right? And as we know, energy is crucial for development. Reliable energy, that's also very important, right? Because we can kind of think, you know, there's lots of times when we say, well, you know, let's kind of leapfrog it, like have the renewables just put in. But we're not at that stage yet there, right? There's just no renewables being, renewables cannot support yet and reliably industries. And while they can support people being able to, you know, have some electricity at certain times of the day, able to charge their phones and so on. They cannot support larger development, which means they cannot really support betterment of that society, kind of like, you know, a substantive one, as opposed to just to ad hoc one. That's when you when you really need to think what can be, what is needed. And the cheapest, usually people, you know, what people access is the cheapest energy that's closest. Yes. Reliable, reliable, and it usually is coal in many places. I mean, particularly Asia, but also Central Eastern Europe. There's kind of trying to, you know, we can, we can talk about this because there's this rift, very similar rift that exists in Europe that kind of is, you know, later on the, glo- that on the global scale. So in Africa, actually, it's not as much coal because it's South Africa that has a lot of coal, but the rest is gas. Yeah. That has, well, that has reserves of gas, but because of political factors, factors on the ground that gas cannot be often used to support the development of energy systems, grid, and so on. You know, and I think this kind of this dualism of where people live nowadays, it's kind of, and I think there is not enough understanding on the part of which currently creates this kind of global policies, pushing those global policies, because those countries have the most influence, right? But I don't think there's enough 
reaching out, there's enough understanding of what's needed and how we can work with those countries to really make it different, to really make the change. Because transition only in certain parts will do us nothing good. Just think about, you know, all the developed world goes off completely off oil. Get it, right? Oil, they don't use it. They use electricity, renewable. Developing world, it's not going to happen for many reasons, including those that I've mentioned. So what happens to demand and supply of oil? Well, if demand decreases, well, then there is going to be, if demand decreases, the prices are going to decrease. What do you think does it do for the developing world that needs cheaper energy? Well, they are now more likely to use that oil, right? So because it's cheaper and they will go for the cheaper energy since they are they, the resources are limited. So they will use more oil. And almost as a result, the developed world is subsidizing the use of oil in the developing world. Mm. So... If, if you do things only looking at a portion of the entire, you know, picture, you actually, the unintended consequences that you are creating may result in lack of results or very limited results. And the same goes for, you know, coal and other resources. That, so it needs to be a holistic approach. Right. So would you say there's room? I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of push to go, to go green and then lower carbon emissions and, and this and that. But I mean, do you think there's room for everything? Because I, I don't think it's necessarily one or the other, right? Like, I think it's, it's important. And I think it's, you know, it's inevitable that, you know, in time, like the US, you're seeing a lot of states push, you know, like now they're, you know, with, with EVs, and I think in parts of California, they're not even through construction, including natural gas pipelines. So then naturally, you're, you're just going to have to somehow get your electricity from renewable energy. But I mean, at the end of the day, I think there's, there's room for all of it. How does that play into the part? And, and do you think that that's something that is feasible on a global scale? Because I mean, there's, then that's the thing. I think that a lot of people misunderstand or just are ignorant to the fact that there's still countries that don't have an electricity grid. And like you said, they're scratching for re- reliable and affordable energy just so that they can have electricity for school and, and all the just the very necessity things of life that we take for granted every day. Yeah. I mean, is there room for it all? And I mean, are we trying to lean one way too heavily? And are these countries, these nations that are still developing, you think they're kind of getting pressured and are now even making it worse for their people? I mean, what do you think? I think, you know, it's very important to stop and think what climate action means, right? Or, you know, or what decarbonization mean? And kind of really think what, I mean, it's in the world, right? It's decarbonization. So getting rid of CO2, really. Trying not to emit it, which doesn't necessarily mean renewable only. Once we think about, you know, once we come to this realization, climate action is not about Getting rid of fossil, shouldn't at least be about getting rid of fossil fuels and putting, you know, renewable or green energy, whatever you think this is, but it's about decarbonizing, right? And if we think about this, we will have a much broader kind of scope of actions at our disposal. You could use coal if you are able to get out, get all the CO2 off of it and potentially also, you know, get rid of all the other negative aspects of coal mining or so on. There is nothing wrong with it if you figure out a way to do that. Same goes for gas, same goes for oil and so on. And 
truly, I, I think this realization has been gaining track, I want to say for the like last two, three, maybe four years, which at least when I look through all these energy insights from, from different perspectives, there used to be, how do we switch to renewables? But there has been this realization that it's not going to be easy or possible at this stage with this level of technological development we have now to do that. And we've seen a push to, you know, carbon capture and storage or carbon capture and utilization and storage. And we've seen push for hydrogen, green, but also other type of hydrogen, which could have decarbonization benefits and could actually have decarbonization benefits for, for industries that would be very hard to decarbonize, such as steel making. So this realization has come in slowly, I think, and not as much in that kind of high level dialogue that we hear, you know, because there is still, when, you, when we talk about climate negotiations, so there's almost the sphere of kind of mentioning that, that we need to kind of work on different levels. We hear this kind of high points of, you know, green energy, getting rid of coal, getting rid of carbon dioxide and so on. But the, the realization is there. So I think that is kind of the slow moving process, although I would really, I really think there is a need for kind of a different approach. You don't want to people have people kind of being afraid to talk about it, just because it's not popular, right? Whereas I think it can actually truly, you know, embracing all of the above approach can have truly, you know, the global decarbonization benefits, as opposed to kind of piecemeal, locally kind of focused regulation and and decarbonization efforts that can be later offset, as I've mentioned, by behavior on the other side of parties that are not committed or are not able to do the same thing. Right. No, that's a a very good point. And on that sort of subject, talking about electricity and energy, I want to kind of pivot onto stuff that, that is, is really sort of in your wheelhouse. You recently published a paper called USLNG, A World of Benefits Beyond Price. Gas is an interesting topic and at around $4, it's something worth bringing up. Yeah. Can you touch on, on perhaps the paper and the, the current state of LNG and its future and how that's going to hopefully provide solutions you know, on a global scale? LNG is actually quite interesting thing, particularly, you know, from the U.S. perspective, right? Because we often kind of, you know, met with this, with this, well, we should not be developing fossil fuels. They are fossil fuel. After all, all not only we will, you know, the, the idea is not only we will now produce CO2, but also what, what's going to happen, you're going to grandfather in the infrastructure that's being built for the next 20, 30 years or so on, right? This is, this is what we hear about, for example, building pipelines, right? Or building LNG terminals, developing natural gas for exports and so on. And, you know, whereas in the US, one could potentially think to have a similar situation like in the EU where policy could potentially, I don't think it's it's really that, that political culture that would support that. But, you know, given the level of development, wealth, policy could support more renewables in expense of gas, for example. This is not the case, as I mentioned, somewhere else. So when you think the US only, or when you think, you know, for Europeans, Europeans only, yeah, it's possible to decarbonize more and kind of get rid of some of the fossil fuels. But when you think that this gas is supposed to be exported, you need to think about where it's going to be exported, right? Right. If that gas is exported in, you know, into... Latin America, if it's exported into Central Eastern Europe, if it's exported into Asia in particular, 
the research that we've looked at, and we had a webinar on this and we mentioned it in this paper, it actually shows that it actually has decarbonization benefits. That because this gas could push out coal, there is a decarbonization benefit to this gas. Had particularly the U.S. gas is interesting because it actually comes to be a quite transparent process. And with the type of policies that we have now, kind of really focused on, you know, reducing methane emissions, which actually is a good thing. You just gather more methane, right? So it's gas. And yeah. then people don't realize that this methane is gas is actually money. So if you have, particularly if you have economies of scale, it actually can add to your bottom line. Of course, yeah. Right? So when you think about this, you know, making sure that the pipelines are well-maintained, not leaky, and... The U.S. companies and U.S. has enough technological development, enough wealth that can do all that. And there is enough transparency within the process to make sure that you can hold responsible those who would not. And you, so this is a process where you end up with, and plus a lot of LNG companies are now trying to look how to decarbonize the LNG they're producing, either by offsets or by other means of creating cleaner or greener LNG and so on. When you compare it to a different LNG, those different type from, from different parts of the world, they might have a very different characteristics in terms of transparency, for example, right? So when you're getting, you know, LNG from other countries, you may or may not how much really carbon emissions there has been produced during their you know, production, how much offsets or whether they were made and so on. US is quite really interesting because there is this transparency and private companies and not governments involved, mm. which, which makes it for a very different relation. So this goes, you know, now, so we go talking about environmental benefits for decarbonization in other parts of the world, but then it's also the energy security, you know, benefits where, where you get your, you know, when countries like, you know, well, India or, or other countries in, you know, China to an extent, but in other countries in Asia, when they think about, well, should we bring gas? They think about several things. They think about price. So the more LNG is available, the cheaper it's going to be. So you have additional point of supply in the US. Well, that kind of brings in the gas prices, global gas prices lower. The second one, is this going to be energy secure? I mean, is the supply secure? Right. Is it going to come at any point that's needed? And if this depends on companies, the companies are limited by the contract terms and markets, right? So while market contracts are predictable because they contract, markets are less predictable, but their lack or lack of predictability doesn't depend on somebody's decision. It depends on setup of on economic development and so on, right? On something that's external from specific countries. Now, if you buy gas from government-backed companies, well, those companies do not only operate, even if they say they do, they don't only operate on market principles. Right, right. They are part of the government and government's policies. So there is a policy element baked in and particularly if it's not a democratic country, the decisions, the policy decisions might be at whim, might be very much dictated by specific goals, geopolitical goals. So geopolitically, you know, the U.S. LNG is much kind of, U.S. LNG has took some of the geopolitics 
out of the global gas supply because the others now need to face the fact that there is additional supply that's flexible, that is provided on market terms, and they need to adjust to it. And we've seen that change. U.S. has led that change in global natural markets, and that's why it's very important for U.S. LNG to be part of it because it kind of depoliticizes the global natural market. Yes. I've never really thought of it like that. And it's interesting because with regards to LNG exports, I think, aren't we hitting some record highs here as of recently from the U.S.? Yes, the prices are, the prices are very high on global markets and U.S. LNG is flowing quite you know, well. Yeah. So price is an interesting point because in last month's EIA short-term energy outlook, they were sort of forecasting or, or making mention that because LNG prices and gas prices are continuing to rise, that it's actually, it may actually you know, just with regards to supply and demand fundamentals with the price increasing, that may force people to then go to a cheaper alternative, which would be coal. I mean, do you see sort of, I mean, because obviously we don't want it to get too high. Do you think that's going to, it's going to continue to rise? Do you think natural gas prices and LNG prices are are going to be in in a comfortable position to be able to make it favorable for global markets? I think what we see, we actually have seen a pickup in the U.S. of co-power generation because coal is becomes cheaper, right, for that reason. But what also you need to see in the U.S. is that coal fleet is retiring now. There is no no new coal-fired power plants being planned. You know, that whatever it is, it kind of will retire. If gas is higher up, maybe it will retire slower, but it will still retire. If the policies will disfavor coal, it will retire faster, right? We kind of, that's the idea. It's really because the U.S. is so based on kind of market interactions, it will truly depend on the market. And and we we actually have seen that really well in the past administration, which tried to prop up coal. But because of cheap gas, it actually couldn't. We've seen, you know, we ended up with, you know, a clean power plan getting scrapped. But in reality, the use of gas and the declining coal was higher than what was predicted by the clean power plan based on policy. The market just surpassed the whatever was even thought by the clean power plan and its policymakers. So in the U.S., it's going to be markets that will drive quite a lot of that. But it will be on the margins, especially in going forward for coal. Now, what you do have in stock, particularly if prices of natural gas are relatively high, you have in stock a lot of LNG terminals that are either well under constructions or in being planned and they already permitted. So if the prices of gas are in that kind of comfortable, you know, com- comfortable price, comfortable range, we will see those. LNG terminals being developed, and we will see more exports. What this means for the you know domestic gas? Well, we cannot really go into you know the counterfactual because what will happen? So think about what will happen if we just prohibit exports. It doesn't necessarily mean that gas will be much cheaper in the U.S. What it means it will the production of it will decrease to meet the demand in the U.S. And the need and the cost that the producers are going to be at, it won't necessarily be a lower price, potentially in the beginning, but not later, because it will end up being adjusted. But if you have the exports, you will see this price moving more. So, you know, during COVID, the prices were went 
really, really low, although not in, in US was interesting, but were really, really low in terms of global markets, right? And then now the global markets go up and the US gas has also gone up. So I think, you know, US is and its population is used to markets. It's used to, you know, it's used to the gas prices even going up and down as much, right? Because it doesn't really depend on the administration. It depends on the global markets. Gasoline has always been part of the global market. The global demand and supply determine for oil and gasoline will determine the price. It's not particular policy of one of the other administration, which often we hear in the media or, or kind of in the political discourse. Mm. There's a lot going on there. And I think LNG is a huge future. And especially for us in the US, like you've mentioned, there's a lot happening. And from what I understand, there's there's some plans to, you know, either increase capacity or even build, you know, different plants and LNG facilities. I was reading actually off the coast of Vancouver, Chevron, I think, is is partnering in building one. And it's actually going to be powered all by hydro, which is really interesting. I think it's the first LNG terminal that's going to be ran on renewables. So again, I think it's neat that, you know, the integration of energy and, and I think there may be some other details in there, but just, you know, when I skimmed through the- It's interesting because their electricity is mostly supported by hydro. So whatever electricity this terminal will use, it's actually going to be renewable, renewable power. I think part of, if we're talking about the same development, part of it is, and I'm not sure what, now what it is, part of it would be internally actually run by natural gas. Okay. Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think yeah, it's the Kitimat yeah, one. It's, it's a kind of this mix that was the most kind of that mattered the most. And in fact, Canadian LNG in that in that aspect could become a very interesting part of the supply, especially to Asia. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Out, right? Yeah. Yes, and, and, yeah. And hopefully, you know, with Canada having quite a bit of political resistance to fossil fuels over the last several years, hopefully there's no nothing that stops it or, or if they can embrace it and, and allow it to grow and take advantage of it. I think for Canada, from an energy security perspective, obviously LNG supply to Asian market, it would be so good to see that kick off and, and actually get some, some good runway. Lastly, we're coming up on an hour. So again, I want to respect your time, but can you really quickly describe sort of the impact that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline has on the U.S. and our, and our ability to sell gas to that part of the world? You know, Nord Stream 2 is this kind of gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it, yeah. You know, I already have, you know, written so many things about it. I guess it's good for me because I have something to write about, you know, as, and there is always this kind of, <laughs> you know, whenever Nord Stream 2 comes up, I do get a lot of, I get a lot of inquiries for interviews or kind of speaking on TV or, or, okay. or kind of, you know. Maybe, uh, maybe you're tired of it. You could just point us to a bunch of the stuff you've written if you're... No, <laughs> actually very interesting. So basically what happened most recently, US and Germany came to the agreement that sure, US will stop stopping Nord Stream 2. So US was had the ability to put sanctions on Nord Stream 2 that could really make it very difficult for the pipeline to be completed, but even if completed to start functioning. So it could you know, impose sanctions on all companies, including those who would warranty or insure the pipeline and so on. And it would really create a lot of issues. Although I think still Putin has been so set up on making it work that it will end up being completed and potentially working and so on. But so now the Germany and US have said, well, Let's work together. Let's let it let it happen, but make sure that this new pipeline will not have negative effect on energy security in Europe, particularly in Central Eastern Europe, and particularly of Ukraine. 
Right. So the concern on part of Ukraine is there are like several fold. One is, well, because Nord Stream 2 is actually a replacement for Ukrainian transit. Nord Stream 2 in its kind of basic goal, at least the way it's been portrayed by Russia, has not been an additional supply of Russian gas. It's been a replacement for supply that comes currently via Ukraine. So the idea is let's finish Nord Stream 2, use the newly constructed Turkish stream to the south and get rid of the Ukrainian transit. The reason from the way that Russia puts it is Ukraine has not been a reliable partner. It has several times been not reliable in that it wouldn't, it would cut off the supply or siphon some of the gas that was supposed to go to other countries. And therefore, we want to replace it with something that's much more, that goes directly to EU via Germany. And that's been our reliable partner, newer pipelines. Most recently, the argument that's been added is the environmental argument. It hasn't been there from the beginning, but currently you see, well, and it's that so happens. It so happens that the old the pipelines in Ukraine are old and they leaky, just like pipelines in Russia. And the pipeline, the new pipeline is much more, you know, high tech, not leaky, uses less energy to actually transport that gas. So environmentally, you know, in terms of methane emissions and so on, it's, it's better. So we have to remember it's a replacement, right? Yeah. So what Ukraine is thinking now, or at least the arguments we've heard from Ukraine are, well, we are losing the transit fees, right? So this is two, three billion dollars a year, I think, that Ukraine would lose coming into its coffers. That's a lot of money. At this point, it's not as much gas because Ukraine doesn't take direct gas, doesn't buy gas directly from Gazprom. It actually uses virtual backhaul. So it's, you know, the gas that's supposed to go to Germany or to Poland, it stays in Ukraine and it's it's a virtual reverse flow pretty much or actual reverse flow too. So okay. both of these it does not buy directly gas for years now. So it's mostly kind of focused on those income. It doesn't use gas because it doesn't want to be dependent on Russia for gas. Now, my issue with that thinking is if you want, don't want to be dependent on Russia for gas because Russia could push you to do something geopolitically that you don't want to, why would you want to stay dependent on Russia for money? Yeah. Right? That kind of doesn't really make sense because that's another way in which Russia can influence you geopolitically. That's an issue that I have never heard a response to. The other big thing that I've heard, especially recently from a lot of Ukrainian and Central European media is, well, now if Russia doesn't need the transit for Ukraine, it will be free to destroy basically a lot of the pipeline that's in Ukraine, right? So it will invade Ukraine. It has invaded Ukraine already, but it can now can, will be free to move on and really don't worry about losing a transit territory because now it has another option. I think there is limited, there will be limited kind of appetite for that, really. One thing is, you know, we've seen that Ukraine being a transit territory for Russia didn't stop it from invading Ukraine before. That happened 2014, 2015, when the Crimea was, was taken away. So that kind of hasn't stopped really Russia before. And second, particularly this agreement that US and Germany has currently signed. It's very interesting because it provides both. Now, Germany is kind of being watched 
very carefully, not only by Central and Eastern Europe, but also by US and now even more so based on that agreement. And that also this agreement provides for a, what they call green fund, which I think green is the idea is kind of to make it more popular, but it really what it means, there is a $1 billion that the countries will facilitate. I think Germany has to actually facilitate, it has committed itself to facilitating about 170 million, but later it needs to be facilitated by all these countries to promote investment, including private investment in Ukraine. And I think this is really the key, because when you think about it, if those countries promote private investment, this will be something that will defend Ukraine from any Russian aggression. These countries will directly have interest in keeping their firms and companies safe. Right. Right. So that's one thing. The second thing, this investment will provide income that will not depend on any government's idea of policy, right? And that income would, or that investment wouldn't be even possible currently because what you really see in Ukraine now is that the country has really suffered not only because of economic development cannot be strong enough internally, but it hasn't had enough foreign investment. Part of it is because Russia is invading part of Ukraine, right? So when you think about it, and, and I truly think Russia didn't even want to invade entire Ukraine. It really wanted to destabilize it enough to prevent its development, including economic development, and prevent its ties to Europe, right? And it's kind of, it's enough to kind of sit there and destabilize the country to make it very difficult for Ukraine to kind of, you know, be integrated with Europe more, bring in more companies, because it's just more risky. So this commitment to bring in private investment is extremely important for Ukraine. And I think Ukraine should really capitalize on that. So, yeah, and, and I think, you know, this, this should be a good deal if the countries in Central Europe, again, think about what it can, you know, what leverage it gives them now in thinking about how they, to develop their energy markets, how efficient they could be, you know, new infrastructure. And U.S. has been actually part of that. It has been part of, you know, thinking about how we can connect or how we can help, including funds in connecting via infrastructure, Ukraine and generally Central Eastern Europe with, with, you know, more of a developed set of pipelines and so on, so they can balance their market. In terms of, you know, so in terms of U.S. LNG access to that market, as I said, it's not thought about as, as a replace, is a replacement, not an addition. But there is going to be this Ukrainian transit that's going to be there. And you will see that Russia, whether or not Germany will actually push Russia to sign another 10-year agreement for transit, which that US-German agreement includes, whether or not Russia will still be bringing it. Think about it. If there there is this almost spare capacity, right? So if there is a cold winter, Gazprom can still use that, use that additional pipeline that's there, pay Ukraine on market basis and sell on spot to Europe in terms of US LNG. If it's going to be competitive, it's going to sell. If it's not going to be competitive, it's not going to sell. We know that Russian gas is cheap to bring in to Europe compared to LNG or its cost for can be lower, but not always will it be competitive because of market specific market setup. That's why lots of 
Russian gas was deferred at the beginning of pandemic and lots of US LNG flew to Europe because it was so cheap. Right. Right. And truly nobody really expected, particularly in Europe, for US LNG to be main kind of contract based source of gas. It's more of that gas that's going to be brought either on spot or, an, or you know, the long contracts are very flexible. So it can and can or doesn't have, but it doesn't have to get to Europe at the end. It's the one that kind of provides a ceiling for prices, right? For market level prices. It's what, what we called many times, you know, as credible threat. It doesn't have to flow to Europe in order to affect the flexibility of contracts the prices and kind of general general setup of, of the market. It's enough that there is this possibility of bringing it in that exists. On a global level, it really doesn't matter given how liquid and, you know, and how deep currently the market is. Because what you see is if U.S. gas doesn't go to Europe, somebody else's gas is going all there. Of course. And window of opportunity will open somewhere else. Asia is the main destination, really, which we'll see the supply kind of fighting about. Interesting. Well, I mean, I have so many questions to, to add on to that, but unfortunately, we're coming up, we've broken an hour, but this has been a great conversation. If people want to, I mean, dive into more of, because of, clearly you have a, a vast understanding of these markets, especially LNG, What's the best way for people to access some more information so that it's not just information overload? Because, you know, you type it into Google and you don't know what you're going to come up with. Yeah. So you can check out my LinkedIn profile. You can message on me LinkedIn. That's the easiest way. I always check it. So that's that's the okay. easiest way. I have been co-editor of a book on actually natural gas, monetizing natural gas in the new New Deal economy, ah. which... Okay. Really goes on. And I, I can provide a link for you for that book. So you can even include it somewhere in the podcast description. Yes, because please. Because it touches upon pretty much all of what we've talked about. And it's my great colleague, Michelle Mihot-Poss and Gurken Gulen, who have been the other co-editors. Michelle is the engine of the book and kind of she's, she's the one who kind of really started this project much earlier than and I joined towards the end. But okay. it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting piece, which really includes consideration of all these nitty gritties. It's pretty long. <laughs> okay. Well that, you know, and that's okay. And I, and I think especially right now with this, I think we're at the tip of an iceberg with regards to LNG and natural gas. So yeah, if you could send me the link for that. Institute website, you know, the CS Center for Energy Studies website, it has includes all of our colleagues. You yeah. can see quite a depth of expertise from, you know, minerals, which Michelle is involved in now to water and oil field, which Gabe Collins really looks at quite a lot. And he actually authors with me also on Russia quite a lot. And lots of others, you know, our director is well known in the Ken Medlock is obviously well known in the area. So lots Excellent. of interesting areas of research and a lot of wealth of information. The website, you know, you can find it quite easily. It will be redone in the near future. So it will be even more friendly in terms of user-friendly soon, but you can find all the research there. Perfect. Yeah, I actually had pulled it up before. So there's several links that I'm going to include. And if there's any links that you can help me with, send it to me and I'll include it in the show notes. And with that said, everyone, thank you again for listening. This has been a fantastic conversation. Hopefully we can do a round two again, perhaps this time next year to see how things have developed post COVID because now we're, 
We seem to be coming up on round two with this whole Delta variant. So there's no telling what's going to happen. But nonetheless, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Enjoy Philadelphia. And I'll make sure to include your contact information on LinkedIn. That way people can reach out. So with that said, everyone, always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN. And here are the events on deck for August 2021. This month, we have five events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting our monthly happy hour at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on August 26th. Our July happy hour was a hit, so if you weren't there for the last one, we hope to see you there this month. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts, network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. Other than OGGN's events, we have three in-person events and one hybrid in-person and online event. First up, we have our three in-person events. The first being OTC, or the Offshore Technology Conference, at NRG Stadium in Houston, Texas, from August 16th to the 19th. Next, we have the IPAA Leaders in Industry Luncheon at the Petroleum Club of Houston on August 17th. And lastly, we have the 2021 Connected Plant Conference at the Renaissance Hotel in Austin, Texas from August 30th to September 2nd. Other than our three in-person events, we have our hybrid event, which is NAEP, or the North American Prospect Expo. Now this summit is a hybrid event because it's both online and in-person. The in-person portion of the event will be from August 18th to the 20th at the George R. Brown Convention Center, while the online portion of the event is from August 9th to September 3rd. If you have any questions about these events or any podcasts within the Oil & Gas Global Network, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for August. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.